invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 50, which is where we're at this Advent season. I want to open with an illustration that I think might properly place what we're discussing today into our right thinking. The kind of thinking that Paul urges us to have transformed instead of conforming to the patterns of this world. And it's a very super spiritual illustration. It's about my son and in this card game called Uno. <laughs> uh, you know Uno. Do you know how Calvin plays? He uh, places all the cards upright in front of him on the table. <laughs> and I can see it all. I hold my cards in my hand. He can't see any of them. <laughs> and he still wins sometimes. <laughs> Why? Well, I don't cheat, even though it's hard for me. And I play like I would play if he had held his cards to his hand. And sometimes that means I play a card that I know he could take advantage of or attack me on. A card that might be to his advantage. And then I let him win. Why? Well, because I know the game and I know the situation and I really got nothing to lose. (laughs) I'm still the teacher here. I'm still in charge. God has got nothing to lose when he owns the planet. Let that settle. God owns the planet. You know, I feel the weight of my sins and my mishaps. I never thought I had a temper or anger problems until I had kids to test those limits. I feel the weight of ruining it as a parent. I feel the weight of what's been entrusted to me. The planet, furthermore the universe, is entrusted to God. I don't know, I don't see, I can only hope how my children will turn out. God knows the end from the beginning. He has got nothing to lose. And he's not sweating bullets. He's at the table playing Uno, if you catch my drift. Last week, we looked at one verse in chapter 50, verse 4, where we discovered that God sustains the weary. Those of us weary by the world's woes and miseries and problems and sins, etc. He sustains the weary with his word. We see this, uh, we saw this played out in places like Mark 1, where all those needy people were at the back door of, of Peter's house, and Jesus healed and restored and exercised demons and so forth, and then he gets up the next morning to pray. And then Peter and the disciples tell him that more people, more needy, more world-weary souls were ready for more healing and exercising, and Jesus says no. I came out to preach. That's what I intend to do. That's the contrast here. We all have, we have all this trauma and drama and sin and problems and wars and evil and all of this chaos. And God says, my answer for that is my word. He brought the chaotic world into order with his word. 
And God said, and God said, so Genesis tells us. And he still brings order to the weariness of the world with his word. But now we move on to a topic that Christmas, because this is Advent, right? (laughs) Christmas is, is usually more universally known as celebrating and radiating peace. Peace. And we find ourselves in a faith tradition, Quakers, that might say a thing about this. And, wow, that's kind of eerie. No. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but before we dive in too far, I'm going to invite you to stand in honor of hearing God's word. And let's read Isaiah chapter 50, verses 5 through 7 together. And since I just want to give purpose to all these few Bibles, I'm back in the ESV. So, uh, actually, that's, I was on the right page already. So, verses 5 through 7. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned, not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. Let's pray. Father, I admit that as I studied and prepared for this message, I went into territory that bothers me. I examined what your scriptures say about... (coughs) things that I have notions, thoughts, opinions on. But, Father, I need to change my beliefs to conform to your truth. Um, Your truth does not need to change. Uh, Your truth is eternal. Father, if any of us have attorneys in our hearts ready to wage war against what you might say, I pray that you would... Win, that we would humble ourselves, that our ears would be open, that our hearts would be open. Father, if any of us need to change our opinions, give us the audacity to do so. Father, whatever it is you wish to say, I pray that you would use it to glorify your son, Jesus, and to build us up and help us to be more like Jesus in the process. Say what it is that you desire. Move me out of the way. We ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I haven't even started. People are already walking out. No, just kidding. (laughs) Everyone seems to be champions of peace until you start digging, until you start thinking about it. Because peacemaking is hard. Staying peaceful to bring about peace is hard. I think about Martin Luther King Jr. didn't raise a hand of violence, or so it seems, to bring about change. He was tempted to. He was told by people who shared his same desire, who shared his same dream. Not only are there hostile enemies to those who try to make peace, But there are people of the same tribe, people of the same cause, people of the same group who chalk it up to, well, I see our means as accomplishing what we want to accomplish differently than you do. You think you need to take 
those means, but I want to take these means. You follow me? You think rather naively, not rather childishly, that we can get there without blood, sweat and tears. And I'm just saying there might be a few broken bones by the time we get to our desired utopia, our desired destination. This is even a problem among Christians. Man. (laughs) Because we see in the Old Testament wars. David was a warrior king. How was the promised land conquered? Conquered by bloodshed, sweat, tears, and violence. And so, what is peace? Is not the peace that we desire something where violence is not the norm? What's funny to me is that many Christians are offended at notions of peace and non-resistance. That's funny. (laughs) If one is offended by peace and non-resistance, one might want to think that through. (laughs) If peace offends you, I wonder if you should check your heart. So here I go. I'm about to commit pulpit suicide. We're going to unpack this. And some of us need to get over being offended by peace. And let's see if God Almighty, the universe maker, has, has anything to say about peace. We're going to unpack these three verses with three F's. Faithful, fleeced, and faced like flint. The servant Jesus here is faithful when he's told what to do. He's fleeced for what he does, but his face is set like flint towards the goal of his calling. Faithful, fleeced, and faced like flint. But before we jump into verse six, first, I want to remind you of last week's four R's (laughs) of discipleship. We talked about in verse four, the servant, none other than Jesus speaking in verse four. We we summed up his exemplifying a life in the word in four R's retreating. God awakens him. And the point is, is that you and I need to be retreating away with him. Ritual. God awoke the servant morning by morning. It's ritual. Ritual is routine with meaning. Ritual. Thirdly, verse four, that said that God awakens the servant's ear. That is receiving. The servant's disciples are to receive God's word when we retreat. That's the point. Lastly, resolved. Resolved. To do what God says to do and be who he wants us to be. Retreating, ritual, receiving and resolving. The second preface before we jump in is quickly we should note that the servant Jesus is making a contrast here in verses 4 and 5 of Isaiah 50. Because at the beginning of Isaiah 50, this poem, God asks, why when I came was there no man? Why when I called was there no one to answer? Right. Israel was constantly disobeying God, whereas the servant says the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I want this heart. Don't you want that heart? I don't know about you, but I find sometimes that God might open my ears. But I'm not receiving or I'm not resolving (laughs) I'm minimizing. I'm diminishing. See, this 
could be whenever I'm confronted and convicted with sin. Lord, I, I know you forgive me. We don't need to talk about that. Because that's what we find David doing in the Psalms, right? No. <laughs> David doesn't go through the motions. He goes through the emotions of contrition. He receives God's temptation and he resolves to work through repentance. As for the servant Jesus, we know him to be sinless. The servant declares so in Isaiah 53 verse 9, says that he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So it is likely that the servant was not rebellious and did not turn away from what God called him to do. I should say that again. It is likely that the servant was not rebellious and he did not turn away from what God called him to do. We often see the life of discipleship as one of repenting of sin and what not to do. But I don't know about you, but I don't look in the Bible to see it was predominantly holding up people of faith for what they did not do, but for what they did. They were obedient to the tasks that God called them to do. We hear about the bad things that Abraham did. He lied about his wife twice, or he went to go to sleep with Hagar. But never do we read, and Abraham resisted temptation this day. <laughs> no, his faith is exemplary for what he did, not for what he did not do. The servant here in verse 5 has not been uh, rebellious and that he uh, didn't sin, but rather that he fulfills and he does and he receives and resolves to do what he's supposed to do. He's faithful. We also talked about last week that Jesus is the vine. Israel was the vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5. But Jesus says in John 15, I am the vine. Do you hear the difference in this? Israel was supposed to be a nation set apart. They were supposed to be a peculiar people, but they failed. But Jesus, the servant, is faithful and succeeds. He even succeeds when it hurts. Even whenever he's fleeced. Verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Now follow me. The servant is the prime example of Israel. We said last week, and I just said, I believe today, that, that we looked over those four R's. He showed us how to how a life in the word is. But whenever it comes to this stuff, like what Jesus is talking about in verse five, it's hard. Here's what some might do. Some might throw out what I've been doing so far, and not only showing how Jesus fulfills things, but showing how we ought to follow his example. Some might say, yeah, that's good stuff. But when we get here, well, this is an obvious example of Jesus on the cross. And let's just leave it at that. Of course, he wasn't going to resist his mission. It's how he saved swell people like me. But don't tell me to follow his example here, Kevin. Because this is logical thinking. What does Jesus say, though, to his disciples? I'm about to read to you a lot of Matthew chapter 5. Not because I don't think you don't know it, but because sometimes it's good to hear. Matthew 5, beginning with verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
Or you have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother or his son, Kevin, (laughs) will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison truly i say to you you will never get out until you have paid the last penny verse 38 you have heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth but i say to you Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Well, I do that every day, (laughs) right? I gave my back, says the servant back in our passage, to those who strike. Behold, my servant whom I'm uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, says God. In the first servant poem, Isaiah 42, he says, I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations then listen to this he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street now i tell you that we live in a culture both world and christian that says this is how we operate this is how we leverage power this is how we gain influence this this brash arrogant take it to the streets march get angry get almost violent until we know until our voices are heard and god says not my servant a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench he doesn't take advantage over the weak he goes so far as to give his back to those who strike him and his cheeks to those who pull out his beard. We have to reorient our thinking. The Bible says to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And the world says, fight back. The world says, you're a sissy, you're a coward. If you just stand there and take it, God says, The servant says, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Did you? That's a statement of bravery. Resolve. I didn't hide my face. 
I look my persecutors in the eye. Have me do as you please. And what did that mean? They did as they pleased. They had him and they crucified him. Do you want to know how to stop a maddening, weary world of warring and violence and backbiting and plotting and injustice? Here's how the world thinks to stop it. Warring for the good things, fighting for the good things, biting the backs of backbiters, plotting against plotters and scheming and cheating against those who would do injustice. Jesus says, I got a better way. Jesus says, let them fleece me. Let the warriors war against me. I'll take it. Jesus says, let the violent do me violence. Jesus says, let the backbiters bite my back all they want. Let they plot. Let them plot and ruin me unjustly. And Jesus submits himself to that. Because God's not thrown by that. He doesn't mind losing. <laughs> we worry about losing, don't we? Well, not when we're playing Uno with five-year-olds. God owns the planet. He's got nothing to lose. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Can you submit yourself to this? Back in the first servant poem, where the, the chosen in whom God's soul delights and the one who does not cry aloud or lift up his voice to make it heard in the street, the one who doesn't break bruised reeds or quench faintly burning wicks, God says, even so, he will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. God wins. Even though Jesus be slain, he still wins. In fact, this is how he wins. Jesus ushers in the kingdom that surpasses every kingdom and is transcendent over every kingdom and is still going strong despite any other kingdoms, notably the ones in Isaiah's day and in Jesus' day, which are no more. There's no more Babylon. There's no more Rome. But King Jesus and his kingdom is still here. And he didn't usher it in with warring and violence and backbiting and plotting and injustice. He did so dying. He did so serving. He did so loving and peacemaking. If you're wearied in a world full of conflict... If the culture wars are eating away at you, if the plotters are driving you crazy, and if the, the fear of what power is going to devour you next has you burdened, be the peace amid the chaos. Stand firm. And this isn't being a doormat. It's hard. It's why so many are offended by it. It's why many Christians, I'm sure, minimize it, shrug it off. Non-resistance? Well, you know, when Jesus says not to resist the one who is evil, he didn't mean not to resist the one who is evil. <laughs> it's why Jesus, the servant, those who follow his example, must set their faces like flint. Verse seven. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. I said that the world will say you're a sissy, you're a coward if you just stand there and take it. They will say that. How do you think it felt 
when Jesus, King of the universe incarnate, was spat on at the cross. You said you're the Messiah. You're the next King David, huh? David slew the giant. He he procured hundreds of Philistine foreskins for Saul. Good job, Mr. King David, hanging there like a chunk of meat. How do you think Jesus felt? Do you think he was tempted to relive a little Sodom and Gomorrah? Part two. Do you think he was tired of being roasted and wanted to return the favor only literally? If, in fact, in fact, when Jesus was being arrested, we know that Peter drew his sword, slicing off one of the person's ear. But Jesus said, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? I know some of us, if we had that power, boy, we'd use it. This self-professed son of God, this king of kings, the Messiah, so humiliated in his final hours. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. He says he will not be put to shame. He is the prince, ruler of peace. When you're living to serve God, you can take a little bit of man's roasting. God's just playing Uno with his little infants around the around the table. Those infants are the world's tough guys who fancy themselves a little bit bigger than their britches. But you and I are God's cards. If you catch my illustration. When Jesus was spat on on the cross, he did not hide his face from disgrace and spitting. When the people made fun of him, when the people jeered him and, and scorned him, Jesus was glorious to God. Jesus was treasured by God. Jesus was the delight of God. We don't live to please please men. Men both against us and those who claim to be with us. We don't live to please them or to fight the world with the world's ways. We live to please God. And the psalmist says he shall take delight in the death of his saints. We don't fight the world with the world's ways. We die to the world. Paul says in the book of Galatians, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross. You know, the cross is the epitome of peace through non-resistance, of surrender to the point of death, of war against me, do violence, backbite, I won't retaliate. That is where Paul will boast in of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Peace, not non-resistance, not biting back, is due to the fact that the world has been crucified to me. You know what that means? I'm not supposed to care about all the petty, little, wearying causes of the world when I know the kingdom is triumphant. The kingdom wins. Knowing who wins kind of stills thunder, doesn't it? Like how many, like... I used to go over and watch hockey games at Phil's house, but then I would have the misfortune of checking the phone scores. And, uh, you know, this was a recorded hockey game. Well, my team lost. Well, I don't really want to watch that. (laughs) What point, what logic would it be if some petty, snobbish, bratty rebel in a kingdom, whom God loves, don't hear me wrong, but if a rebel comes to a loyal citizen... Of the winning kingdom and says, I'm a leader in the rebellion and I'm going to kill you. So says a rebel in a conquered kingdom. Okay. 
My king doesn't take lightly to having his servants murdered, but if that be your pleasure, I'll let my king sort it out in the end. See, the thunder is stolen. If the wind is decided as it is, then one should be able to set their face like flint. There's this passage in Luke where this phrase is used. Not entirely, but where Jesus's face is set and it epitomizes Jesus conquest of peace versus the world's conquest with violence. Jesus is traveling, as he did often, from Galilee north to Jerusalem south. And between Galilee and Jerusalem is California, I mean Samaria. (laughs) And Samaria, we're told, is so regarded by Jews that many times Israelites would be willing to go far around um, out of their way so as not to have passed through Samaria. Now, I don't know if that's true or if that's just one of those tidbits that some pastor made up and we repeat forever. However, in any case, John 4 makes it clear that Samaritans and Jews did not like each other. And we get this striking picture in Luke 9. It seems Jesus notes a change in his trajectory of his life and in his life's ways. We're told in Luke 9:51 that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now, Samaritans are kind of ancient half Jews. They broke away from Jews hundreds of years prior to Jesus. And they have this fight about where the right worship is. They they have their own Jerusalem. That is their own holy city. It's not named Jerusalem. And so because Jesus is being a faithful Jew heading to Jerusalem, likely for a holy day, they say, no, he can't bunk anywhere in our town. He's practicing the wrong religion. The world's ways, bickering, fighting, inhospitable and angry. But then we find out the disciples are no different. The disciples want to use the world's ways. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Seems logical. (laughs) It's easy for us to laugh at this passage, but it's not as easy for us to identify with it. Either because we think we're innocent of their sins or deep down we're too ashamed to admit it. If you've ever wished for the death of a politician or a whole block of politicians, if you've ever wished that some people in this nation would just die If you wouldn't necessarily be championing assassination, but you would be extremely disappointed if your TV show was broke up by their state funeral. This is the sort of the heart the disciples are having. When they think that violence is the answer. When they think that the Prince of Peace wants to establish his kingdom of peace through means of violence, through means of conquest by power. But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Boy, I wish Luke would have fleshed out that rebuke. (laughs) What were you thinking? (laughs) Peace, oddly enough, seems to be offensive to some people. But Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom that conquers by peace. It makes war through peace. That is not in the way the world makes war, not at all in the way that the world makes war. See, these same brothers, the sons of thunder, James and John, they also had the audacity at one point to try and 
posit themselves as Jesus' left and right hand men. What did Jesus say to that? But Jesus called to them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to serve, but to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus shows up in the middle of a bunch of converging would be power hungry children at the table playing Uno. Each of them have in their mind to win and they're all five years old. And the paradox is, is that the baby showing up vulnerably in the conquered Jewish parents in the poor manger with, you know, five-year-old Herod ready to murder some babies, hoping he wipes them out. And, you know, all the five-year-old Sanhedrin preparing themselves to go over to the five-year-old Romans and conspire an overthrow of the only adult at the table with cards that he's willing to lose with. That's what's going on. And when this baby shows up, Joseph is reminded by the angel of a prophecy in Isaiah, the same prophecy which says that his name shall be called Prince of Peace. And when this baby shows up, some shepherds are told about his birth. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth and goodwill towards men. The Prince of Peace who brings peace on earth. See, peace is a conquering thing. Peace can be an offensive thing to people who are so ingrained and depraved of mind where violence and warring and fighting has always been normative and peace sounds foreign. Peace sounds hostile. Peace sounds otherworldly. It is. It's heaven worldly. And it's the sort of thing where Jesus calls his disciples to, to be faithful. To be willing to be fleeced from time to time and to have one's face set like flint to do what he's called us to do all in the name and the vein of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just touched the tip of an iceberg. There are so many questions that come with this. A lot of questions that have been raising in my own heart and mind. And I'm sure some in here. What about one-on-one encounters? What about protecting my family? What about this or that? Father, all I know is that you offer a better way of doing life and living. You offer a kingdom that was conquered solely by means of peace. Father, we're here today because of what you did 2,000 years ago, and what you did had nothing to do with swords or armies or wars. It had to do with preaching and healing and peacemaking and loving and serving. And furthermore, all the kingdoms who thought they had won whenever they crucified you, they're no more. But your kingdom has far outgrown and outdone anything they could have ever dreamed of. Help us to be citizens of your kingdom, loyal to your ways, doing life your ways. Help us to continue to conquer for your kingdom in the ways you want us to conquer. Father, we thank you for this reminder that whenever the weary world makes us weary, that you offer us peace. And you offer us a way of living that brings about more peace, peace for our lives and our hearts and peace for those around us. We love you. We thank you. And we ask and pray all of this in Jesus name. Amen. Amen.